You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported. Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Don Guerra. And I'm Noel Herhusky-Schneider. This is the WFHB Local News for Monday, March 14th, 2022. Later in the program, WFHB correspondent Zero Rose continues his conversation with Emily Hamilton, Senior Research Fellow and Director of the Urbanity Project at George Mason University. Stay tuned to hear part four of the conversation in today's feature report. Also coming up in the next half hour, we have some recent prison-related news and announcements from the producers of KiteLine, our public affairs program devoted to prison issues in the Midwest and beyond. But first, your daily headlines. At the Bloomington Redevelopment Commission meeting, Director of Housing and Neighborhood Development John Zoti asked the board to approve an increase in funding for a rehabilitation project for a home on East Hunter Avenue. He said that they discovered foundation damage while they were renovating and it exceeds the amount of money that was initially set. John Zodi with the hand department. So as the commissioners know, uh, periodically we've come to you um, to ask for an increase in funding for uh, rehabilitation projects for homes. Uh, The most recent ones were two mobile home projects in December where we were installing uh, HVAC units and the prices of those were higher than that originally came back. Our administrative manual, um, our our programs and procedures document has a guideline in place that if there is a need for additional funds, we would come to the Redevelopment Commission, um, and there is a cap. So we have been working with the homeowner now um, to rehabilitate various aspects of his home, and it it turns out this project, um, there are foundational, or there's issues with the foundation, there's keep sort of keep finding things, uh, if you will. And so we are uh, requesting your approval to um, go above the $38,500 cap uh, threshold uh, and do an amount not to exceed $5,000. We have a current estimate of $2,487.27, but um, in case there are any other changes, we won't have to come back with another request. We think $5,000 is a reasonable amount to uh, proceed with that. So, A commission member asked about the price of the foundation as she was concerned it could be more than $5,000. Program manager for HAND, H-A-N-D, Cody Toothman, responded to the concern about the amount of the additional fees. At least part of the work that's being done with the foundation was, I believe it was $2,800 because when we were repairing one of the basement walls, we found out there was no footer underneath, okay. uh, which for that to be structurally secure, it does need that footer to be poured first. Uh, And then I believe there was also some concerns in getting the front stoop area up to code, which would result in, uh, from the way it was constructed, uh, would have to also, I believe, be replaced, which was $1,200. I know John could speak a little bit more to the 
way that was structured, but part of it had to do with uh, also tearing up a portion of the sidewalk as well. So uh, those two items alone were about $4,000, uh, if I recall correctly. The commissioners approved the additional funding unanimously. Next, Director of Economic and Sustainability Development, Alex Crowley, presented an agreement for a sustainability consultant for the legacy IU Health Hospital site. So, uh, you know, as we're getting ready to um, uh, prepare for the disposition of parcels for the Hopewell development, you know, the hospital site, um, we, we have uh, recognized and the mayor has, has uh, been focused on and also the, you know, the whole master planning process was um, highlighting the opportunity that exists to really uh, increase the sustainability and the sustainable development within the property um, and, and really you know, make it uh, hopefully something that, that stands out in the community. So we uh, have uh, looked around at different opportunities and, and decided that one way to advance um, really the objective that, that the master plan and all of us are here is to, to have a uh, third party, in this case, Guy Dunn, come and really help us in a couple of different respects to prepare for the disposition of the property. So the first is to do some advanced due diligence work, uh, due diligence work in terms of understanding how other communities have, um, you know, sort of entered this phase and really led up to a successful sustainable development outcome. Um, the second is to um, help us through a workshop, really educate the team on a couple of uh, important aspects, that due diligence work, but also the financial impacts of um, different scenarios having to do with sustainable, sustainable development. So to, to help us understand some of the you know, financial implications of the kinds of outcomes that we're seeking. The board approved the resolution unanimously. The next Redevelopment Commission meeting will be held on March 21st. At the Utilities Service Board meeting on March 10th, Director of Utilities Vic Kelson gave an explanation of how the meeting is currently set up now that they are back in person. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to share with everyone that this is not a hybrid meeting. This is an in-person meeting, but we've set up a Zoom feed because the room limit is 15 people. So with a 15-person limit, we can't have a bunch of staff in here. We can't have a bunch of visitors. And if the public comes in to speak, uh, right now we have 14 people in the room. So if two people come in, somebody will have to leave. <laughs> um, presumably one of us over here uh, will have to step outside. So um, we're going to maintain the room limit and uh, CBU staff can join the meeting uh, externally by Zoom. I have a speaker here on my computer, so if we are in a situation where there's a staff member speaking from outside, I'll turn my speaker on so you can hear it in the room. So we do have the equipment on order to convert the room to be suitable for hybrid meetings, but there's one of the uh, critical components is uh, experiencing shipping delays. The last I heard, it would be here mid-April, so we're going to be doing it this week for probably a couple of months. and. Uh, uh, it's worked out fairly well, but uh, I'll make sure we have an external speaker next time. 
So this is not a hybrid meeting. If the public wants to attend, they have to attend in person. Director of Operations Tom Axum asked the board to approve an agreement with Pontomac Service. I'd like to ask for your approval for a contract with Potomac Electrical Services. Uh, this is for work at the Blucher Pool plant. It's, uh, they're going to be doing cleaning and testing on a 480-volt uh, switchgear and recondition a circuit breaker. They're also going to provide uh, two backup generators so we can keep the plant in power while they're doing their work. Uh, I'd be happy to answer any questions. Kelson also brought up in new business a memorandum of understanding with Monroe County to share the cost of a feasibility study. What we've been talking about, you, you know we've spoken a number of times about the potential for a waste-to-energy project where we would uh, take uh, wastewater sludge and other solid waste streams that are organic and compostable. Uh, there's been a study done by the Solid Waste Management District and a similar discussion of, among city uh, sanitation that about 40% of the solid waste stream uh, in Monroe County is compostable. It could be digested uh, to make gas. We also, as you know, uh, handle oil and grease uh, at the Dillman plant, but we do not allow oil and grease from outside Monroe County uh, to come in because we really don't treat it. it it's in a lagoon there. Um, so. Uh, this is something we looked at a couple of years ago. We did a, an internal study looking at how much gas we could make with the waste streams that we know that we have, and including uh, uh, food waste from IU and IU Health, the new hospital, and so forth. Um, and because of the size of the digester we need to handle all the sludge from Dillman, it just didn't make sense to build something there. Uh, the other thing is that at the Dillman plant, uh, we don't have what's called primary sludge. That's the stuff that just falls out when you bring the water uh, to the wastewater plant. Uh, Dillman goes straight into aeration, so it doesn't have two stages of treatment. The Blucher pool plant, however, does have primary so solids, the high energy solids, and um, but that plant is probably too small to, to justify an anaerobic digester all by itself. The question that uh, we're looking at, though, is to consider this as more of a, uh, not a wastewater sludge problem, but a solid waste problem. He said the study would cost about $129,000 and would be evenly split between Monroe County and the city of Bloomington. Kelson said the Solid Waste Management District Board will still be discussing the study at their meeting in April. The next Utility Service Board meeting will be held on March 28th. Up next, we have some recent prison-related news and announcements from the producers of KiteLine, our public affairs program devoted to prison issues in the Midwest and beyond. On Tuesday, March 8th, a day recognized annually as International Women's Day, activists from the Shutdown Burks Coalition rallied outside of Berks County Residential Center, demanding that Berks County commissioners shut down the prison. Protesters expressed solidarity with the incarcerated women currently housed in the facility through handwritten postcards and other actions to advocate for the prisoners in the facility. After years of organizing and resistance on behalf of the organizations that make up the coalition, the facility, which was once a detention center for immigrant families, 
was shut down in February 2021, and all the families were released. But in January 2022, the Biden administration and ICE repurposed the site to incarcerate immigrant women, despite major backlash from activists and community members. The Biden administration has increasingly turned to alternatives to detention, such as ankle monitoring bracelets and mandatory phone check-ins for families that may have been previously detained. However, single adults are still being incarcerated by the tens of thousands. As of January, 20,886 immigrants were being held across all of ISIS facilities, according to TRAC, a nonpartisan, nonprofit data research center affiliated with Syracuse University. Adriana Torres Garcia, program director with the Free Migration Project and member of Shutdown Burks, said last month that she and her fellow members are very frustrated and disappointed that the federal government had 11 months to close the center while it was empty but failed to do so. We're calling on President Biden to let these women go and shut this down, Torres Garcia said. This is the same facility where a staff member was convicted for repeatedly sexually assaulting a 19-year-old mother in 2014. ICE detention facilities are notorious for sexual violence against detainees. KiteLine airs each Friday at 5.30 p.m. on WFHB. The program is available online at wfhb.org or wherever you get your podcasts. In today's feature report, WFHB correspondent Zero Rose of the Eco Media Center of Monroe County continues his conversation with Emily Hamilton, Senior Research Fellow and Director of the Urbanity Project at George Mason University. Rose asks our guests about a range of issues, mainly focusing on affordable housing. Stay tuned to hear part four of this ongoing series on the WFHB Local News. The conversation begins with our host asking our guest about rail to trail, essentially former rail lines that have been converted to walkable paths and trails. That was kind of one of the trade-offs with these rail to trail scenarios that have happened here in Indiana. This was a quarry town and there were mills, sawmills and things. And so you have the trains coming right through town, but those have now been converted to walkable, bikeable trail lines that could have been, you know, it seems to me that they could have doubled the easement or something and sort of had a parallel usage going on, at least like some kind of tram system. There used to be a light rail system all throughout the state here that was all ripped out basically when buses were devised so people could completely traverse the state in a day and get to Chicago and wherever you needed to. Now that is no more. And I I noticed that in this annexation uh, situation, the city's been pretty clear that part of their decisions on where they want to develop to are related to arterial highways and things, presumably to make the development a little easier as far as the heavy trucks and transport. But I-69 was for many, many years fought uh, for going through virgin forests and splitting up, you know, family farmstead homes and things. And there was an area that they were going to develop on the north side. But after other examination of the current uses, and I don't know, the topography, 
they decided not to include that in the annexes, even though it was toward the major transportation corridor that did go through, that did get put in. It seems to make the primary focus of everything development. I mean, does everything need to be developed? Does every area need to be densified? Does that mean that places that are a little more wide open, that are a little more what people consider human scale, more comfortable, are those just doomed? Do you see where a balance could be struck with that? Obviously, people have excluded people of other races. And as people did the urban flight, they set up sub- suburban situations to get away from the poor people and, and these type of things. But is it necessarily that someone who wants a home and a yard, do you see them as necessarily an impediment to progress? Do they have any kind of right to want that kind of quiet existence that they, and things like they used to call sleepy bedroom communities? Certainly. I think there's absolutely a role for for low-density development and for people to continue living in detached single-family houses across the U.S. That's uh, the majority of the country's housing stock, and I don't see that changing anytime soon. What I focus on is liberalizing land use laws to make a denser pattern of development legal for those who do want it, those who are are currently not well served by rules like detached single-family zoning that prevents anything else as an option. Conflicts certainly arise when people who live in an existing low-density residential neighborhood don't want to see their neighbors changing their property to allow more people to live there. And that that's where this debate comes in, is whether rules that outlaw anything other than detached single-family development should be reformed to increase development rights, perhaps improve housing affordability and walkability, or if the current zoning regime should stay. Yeah, clearly things like gated communities and developments where it's regulated what shade of beige you can paint your mailbox, those are clearly pretty exclusionary setups. There's just different dispositions of people, I think. Some people are more comfortable in a more dense setting and situation. Other people like their privacy and they're quiet. So, and that's often the maybe false dichotomy that's put in place against development. And it's generally because people don't feel like they have any control or any say over what's going on around them very much. So maybe they kind of overcompensate and get into everybody else's business a bit much. In terms of that, I believe with the uh, ADUs here locally, there was a requirement to inform your neighbors within a couple of lots, any direction around you that you're, you're going to build an auxiliary dwelling unit. But they kind of dropped that because they said there's nothing that anybody could say against that. So there's not a mechanism for anybody trying to block that, really. But then they talked about just the kind of thing of communicating with your neighbors, make sure they understand what's going on. Maybe there's going to be more traffic down this alley or something like that. It seems that there's, you know, I called it arbitration or stakeholder. It seems that some kind of other body that could kind of maybe come into these situations. I know there's conflict resolution organizations that kind of arbitrate between parties on a whole range of issues that maybe maybe some of that would uh, smooth the waters on some of these things that just become implacable 
conflicts. Certainly cases like building an accessory dwelling unit, for example, where um, perhaps we'd hope that neighbors could just work this out between themselves and come to a solution that everyone's happy with. In some cases, local policymakers institute like community meetings or other types of platforms for giving residents an opportunity to talk about their concerns about development. One thing that the data about who attends these meetings reveals is that it's often older, high-income people who spend their time attending these meetings, and they tend to draw out people who are opposed to a proposal for new development rather than being representative of a community's residents as a whole. So I think there are pluses and minuses to localities trying to provide a way for residents to provide community input. Yeah, it would require a bit of a proactive advocacy and maybe some more something more like an ongoing forum online or something rather than an event to come and vent your frustrations. See, the other thing with the duplex was quite feared, and there is a quality to these core neighborhoods that it's very charming and that people are kind of scrambling to get a piece of to get one of these older, small, you know, sort of legacy historical homes. And so they were worried about the duplexes and the triplexes sort of moving in. What has happened more toward campus, which is kind of absentee landlord situation at the end of every semester, here's everything in the trash out on the curb, you know, let alone the, the tracks of drunken students coming to and from the strip kind of issues raising ruckus. But apparently there haven't been a lot of applications, or I think any at this point, to put in duplexes or triplexes in the areas that it's now going to be allowed. And I guess that's a bit ratcheted by region. I don't think it's quite blanket. And another one I heard about was that the townhomes that are being put in, in a place, and they were talking the difference between two bedrooms and three bedrooms. They have three car garages below, three bedrooms above, and it's to be oriented toward families in this family zone. But because it has the three bedrooms, they're calling it student housing by the designation because it's anticipated that that's what it will really become, no matter what stated original use is. Have you uh, seen anything that has sort of addressed those kind of conflicts? I mean, this is Bloomington, Indiana, that was in the famous movie Breaking Away with the conflict between town and gown. Yeah, huge fan of Breaking Away. There are many college towns in the country where land use is a big concern. Boulder, Colorado, for example, was a pioneering locality in identifying ways to make it difficult to build housing. And they have ridiculously high housing costs in large part as a result of the policies that were pursued to make it hard to build housing for students or for anyone. You know, it can certainly be legitimate quality of life concerns when you you have a big population of perhaps rowdy 20-year-olds in a neighborhood. But trying to address those quality of life concerns by preventing housing from being built is going to have consequences, not just for those students, but for anyone who's trying to afford housing 
in Bloomington. And then also, of course, from the student perspective, rules that make it expensive to live in the location where a state's flagship university is located are also limiting who can afford to attend that state resource. Support for WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com. been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by myself, Noel Herhusky Schneider, in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Zero Rose. Kite Line is produced by Mia Beach. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB, I'm Don Guerra. And I'm Noel Herhusky Schneider. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at WFHB.org. The WFHB Local News is also available as a podcast. Just search our call letters WFHB wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe to never miss another local news program. Stay tuned for With Good Reason, coming up next on WFHB. WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB Local News Volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB Local News Archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB Local News. We are local, longer, 